We've spent the last year, since September anyway, talking about the shift from slave to child. And as we get to the end of this year, um, it's occurring to me that I've left too much undone. And I'm trying to fix some of that if I can. And so I've focused in the last week and this week on um, how it is that we love God, not just how it is that God loves us. Whenever we think about the shift from slave to child, we're, we're talking about a change in identity from serving God to loving God. Uh, until we make this shift, we are obsessed with laws, sin, judgment, rewards, crowns in heaven, we worry about knowing what God's will is because it is always something outside of our own will and we're trying to tap into it. But once we make this shift from slave to child, um, we don't worry about that anymore. <laughs> we grow in likeness to God who has planted his life inside of us. And as we get older, our will becomes more and more like his own. And so we just live we jump and decide in the air, and uh, it turns out being what the Father wills. We don't worry about uh, um, sin or judgment or rewards or anything like that. We worry about pleasing the Father, about getting his mind and living within his ways. Well, normally... Uh, we think that the obstacle to uh, slave to child is a deficiency in self-esteem, that a person feels poorly about themselves, and so the natural thing to do is to talk to that person about how much God loves them. I mean, what better way than just to say, you are special, you are made in God's image, you are designed for greatness. The problem with it is that it doesn't work. It doesn't produce a better disciple, it produces a worse one. Because we think a person has low self-esteem because they don't think much of themselves. In fact, people with low self-esteem think about themselves all of the time. And they try to pull other people's lives and love into their life. And so to tell them that God is as preoccupied with them as they are with themselves only makes them self-centered. It does not cure original sin, which bends a person from being inward to being outward. Are you tracking? I know, we're going fast. So sometimes we get it all backwards. The second problem is that you never learn love by trying to get someone to love you, you learn it by giving it away. Any love that you seek for yourself is too small to make you happy. It'll get old and stale. The only way for love to grow 
is for a person to forget themselves, lose themselves in the pursuit of another person in their best interest. And it is in that journey that we actually learn to love ourselves. Now, I realize this is pretty much everything we hear standing upside down. If I've heard anything in the last 10 years of my life, it's that I cannot love others because I do not love myself. In fact, I'm telling you, it is exactly the opposite. I cannot love others because I love myself. And it is only in forgetting myself in the pursuit of others that I will learn what it means to love myself. Any love untethered to that is dangerous. Well, we could do the benediction, but we're not going to. So I've tried to turn the focus in the last couple of weeks by thinking not about how much God loves us, but about how much we love God and how would we know? What would we point to as an indicator that, in fact, we are loving God. This morning, I want to give you uh, one more. This is my last on this subject. I know it's late. I've already apologized. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. He says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he or she is the one who really loves me. If anyone loves me, he or she will obey my teachings. He says in John chapter 15, you are my friends if you obey what I command. So this morning, what evidence do I offer that we love God? That here is obedience. Obedience has uh, never been very fun for me. I, like half of you, is uh, the second a rule is made, I want to know why. And I want to know if the person making the rule has the authority to make the rule. And then I want to know whether or not they're keeping the rule themselves. And so it gets pretty difficult when you ask these questions. It, what it means is your elementary years are terrible for the teacher who is constantly infusing the classroom full of rules, does not always have the authority, wishes he or she had more, needs more probably, uh, and sometimes keeps the rules. What I've discovered is that not everybody keeps rules. In fact, most people don't. I know the room is full, uh, well, it's half full anyway, of righteous people who, uh, who keep all the rules. But... I married somebody like you. Most of our arguments are still over whether or not we have to keep that rule. Then the other day when I was talking to Lori, I, I, I said, you know, uh, it's always been easy for you to obey. It's, it's, it's not been easy for me. It's been hard. She said, oh, it's, sometimes hard for me to obey. I said, I never see you break a rule. Then she said, I have ways. <laughs> That's the other half of you. 
See, the liberals in the room just say, you see that out of bounds marker? I don't keep that rule. The conservatives in the room say, see that out of bounds marker? That's not really out of bounds. <laughs> You're the more dangerous. So I'm speaking not to some of us, but to all of us when I talk about what it means to obey. And what I discovered is that the authorities in my life were only worried that I obeyed and who I obeyed. They were never as concerned about why. Jesus appeals to the highest level of obedience in these words. It's the way of love. We obey out of love, which means it's possible to obey without loving, but it is not possible to love without obeying. What changed for me was uh, a, a discovery I wasn't really looking for, and it was that even Jesus, the Son of God, obeyed. This is remarkable. It says in Hebrews chapter 5, he learned obedience through what was Suffered. It says in Philippians chapter 2, he made himself of no reputation, took upon the form of a servant, and became obedient unto death. He says himself in John chapter 5, the son can do nothing on his own. He does only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son also does. Now, I, now I realize this is self-evident to some of you, but this was a big discovery for me. Let me say it to you a little more differently. The one who was with God in the beginning, the one from whom all things were made, the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together, that one, the one who thought it not robbery to be equal with God because he was God, the one who is the exact representation of God's being who sustains all things by the power of his mouth, he is the one who obeyed. God obeyed. Well, who did he obey? It wasn't me. Is there some referee of the gods? Is there a code? Is there a court to whom God has to appeal, to whom God must obey? Who does God obey? This is where it turned for me. Whatever your definition is of obedience, if it does not work between two who are equal and from whom all things come, then you got the wrong definition of obedience. If obedience for you 
is hierarchical. The one in authority makes the rules. The one subservient follows them, Steve. Commanders don't obey officers. Referees don't obey players, Steve. Bosses don't have to obey their employees. If that's your definition of obedience, you got the wrong one because that doesn't work between the father and the son who are equal and who together run everything. Maybe it's our definition that we need to start with. Can I start where obedience starts? In the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, uh, God plants a garden. This is Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And out of this garden, he causes every tree to grow, producing fruit that is pleasing to the eye, and it's really good food. And then the Lord God plants a man inside that garden and says, you can have every tree in the garden that you want. Then he moves him to the center of the garden and there are two trees. What are they again? Tree of life and tree of knowledge. This must be first service. You got the answer right. And says, you are free to eat from the tree of life which sustains and nourishes one's soul the way that other food nourishes one's body. But... From the tree of knowledge, you may not eat. Pause. This is Eden, where everything is perfect. And already, in a perfect world, God has put before us permission and restraint. In the one... You are free to eat from any tree. He nourishes our freedom. In the other, you must not eat that one. He protects our freedom. The lie in the garden is to get the man to think that by withholding the tree from him, God is actually withholding something good. That's not what he's doing. He's not withholding life. Life is in that tree. He's withholding death. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The lie of the garden is to get us to believe that every time we can't do something, every time we are restrained from something, that is God limiting our freedom. No, that's God protecting our freedom. For what God really knows is not that on the day you eat of it, you'll become like God. No, no. What he knows is on the day you eat of it, you won't become like God. By doing one thing, you nourish life. And by doing something else, you drain life away. And this is in a perfect environment. Rules come before the fall, not afterward. You still dragging. 
So the sin in the garden is when the man and the woman decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. Instead of just consigning that to God and saying, you know things we don't know. They say, I know what I want and what I don't want. And if you restrict what I want, that's limiting my freedom. Therein is the lie. People, this is why, this is why obedience, I'm learning, is such a critical issue for Christians. Because having a Christian bow his or her head and let Jesus into their heart does not fix this problem. Because our problem is not in our rebellion. Our problem is in our judgment. There is a disconnect between what we desire and what is our ultimate good. We have this problem today. This room is filled with people who want things that are not for their good. And whatever it is that is for your good, you can't want. There's a disconnect between what you want and what is your good. Having Jesus come into your heart does not fix that. It starts the recovery, but the recovery comes from learning wisdom. We have to move back to the garden. The purpose of obedience is to bend the will back to the garden. It's not about complying with some authority over you. No, 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 no. It's about aligning your will with one who is in you. This is how the father obeys the son. And the son obeys the father. Not just by submission. You're more powerful than me. By alignment. I want the same thing you want. Don't ask. I'll do it anyway. So we have to talk this morning before I quit about why you obey. Because what I've discovered is that obedience uh, does not come automatically, even for rule keepers. Oh, I mean, some of you uh, uh, keep some of the rules all the time. Others keep all the rules some of the time. Almost none of you keep all the rules all the time. So obedience comes in different levels of maturity. I find three in everything I can read, and I found them in my own life as well. I'll put them on the screen. 
The first is obedience out of duty. Think responsibility. The idea here is that there is someone in authority over me and they have the power to enforce that authority. Therefore, disobedience is a transgression of the law. This, by the way, is why you drive the speed limit. It is not because it saves lives. No, no. It's because there are people out there with the power to make you drive the speed limit. Or as they say in the military, we can't make you do anything, but we can make you wish you had. This is why you pay for stuff before you leave. Not because you're trying to grease the wheels of the economy. No, no, it's because I don't pay for it. My life gets worse fast. It's why you pay taxes. It's not because you love the IRS. You, you pay taxes because the IRS has a long memory and a longer reach. So it's out of duty that you do this. The idea here is fear. There is a power outside myself who has the authority to enforce their will on mine. The second level is wisdom. When we obey out of wisdom, we take a will that was once outside of us and we internalize it. Now we do it because we want to or because we want to want to. We start using laws and rules and restraint to shape and bend the will so that it is consistent with our ultimate good. This is why some of you practice spiritual disciplines, not because it's fun to get up earlier or because you have a naturally good memory. Why not turn it loose on scripture? No, it's because by practicing disciplines, you're bending the will, much like you learn a language by practicing it so that your will becomes consistent with the life that you want to have one day. It may feel for a while pretty awkward and even contradictory to some of us, but you keep doing it because it starts to train a person for righteousness. In the Garden of Eden, one sits surrounded by trees that are full of fruit. Two in front of him, life and knowledge. And he learns that next to every command, you shall not eat from this tree is a promise. You can eat from that one. If we break the command, we lose the promise. You eat from that tree, you lose everything. But if you keep the command, you have access to everything. Scott Hoffman writes in his book, the promise of God and the life of faith that every command of God in the Bible 
corresponds directly with the promise of God. So that behind every command is a promise. And inside of every promise is a command. The older you get in your walk with Christ, you start to realize this. Jesus is not just king of the world. He's also right. He's figured out how things work. You can break them if you want, but you'll pay for it. Not because he's inflicting punishment on you, but because he already knows the consequences built into the act. He's trying to spare you the pain and disillusionment from finding contentment outside of his will. All oh, this is a big discovery. Because now you start keeping, you start writing your own rules. Which leads to the third one, love. When a person serves or obeys God out of love, they do it with a heart of resonance. They do it automatically. They know the will of the other at the same time that the other knows it because they are the same will. This is why Augustine prayed, Oh God, help me to do your will as if it were mine so that you could do my will as if it were yours. That's an absurd statement, unless it's possible. He's talking about a resonance in which God desires something and the people that are closest to him desire it at the same time and to the same degree. Now, can I point out a few things about the pyramid before I let it go? First, you will note at the top of the pyramid, there are far fewer people than at the bottom. Most people you know fit in level one or they fit in level two. You can make quite a life for yourself getting stuck in level two, doing only what is wise for your life, what leads to a bigger, fuller life. People, the problem with this is you're still doing it for yourself. The goal is to get you bent outward onto someone who is bigger than yourself. It's to get you to lose yourself. And if we can do that, then we start obeying God out of love. And he can call for absurd things that do not seem wise, and we will do them anyway. Just because it was God who said so. Not because he has the power to enforce it. Not because it's in my best interest. It's just because I love him. He can tell me anything and I'll do it. Or fail trying. Second thing I would like you to see is that the closer you get to the top of the pyramid, the fewer laws there are. 
the problem with people like me who don't like obedience is that we have too many laws, not too few. The people who obey out of love do it because their heart has been bent to the will of God. The rules just start going away. You say, wait. Yeah. People who obey out of love are more liberal than people who obey out of rules. They're far more liberal. And yet at the same time, they have more convictions. The law will let you do things love won't let you do. So man, when you love him, you add things. He says, you can't have that tree. And you'll say to yourself, or that one, or that one, or that one. You'll add them in order to protect. But at the same time, you'll be humble about it. You won't be running around like a legalist telling everybody else that they can't do it either. You'll be quiet, but you will be self-restrained because you are drawn by love, not by some authority or what's in your best interest. Wow, can you imagine getting to a place like that? You'd be dangerous in a room full of Pharisees. Which leads to the last observation. People who obey out of love hold more tenaciously to obedience than anybody else in the room. Here's why. Because if I'm the devil, no comment, and you obey God out of wisdom, all I have to do is get you to believe something that isn't true. And that's a lot easier to do because your judgment is already flawed. But if you love him to a place where you'll do things for him that seem irrational, I don't know how I sever that. I don't know how to break you. That's Loctite. I'll pick on someone else. So this morning, when we take communion, this is how I'd like us to take it. Um, If you have children upstairs, this is your four-minute warning. Go get them. We would love for your kids to join us. I'm sorry you'll miss these next three minutes. I believe this morning that there are people uh, in our room here that um, God has been saying things to you lately and you can't obey him. Now, I'm not trying to create a problem where there isn't one, but I suspect in an audience like this, God has been speaking to somebody a lot about something and they find it too hard to obey him. 
What is it that God is asking you, no, that's not the right word, commanding you to do? What restraint is he put in your life and you to this day have not yet obeyed it? I would like you to call that forward into your memory right now. I'm calling you this morning to do what he says. I'm asking you to say, be it unto me as you have said. I would like you to say to God what Jesus said to God. Here I am, O God, I have come to do your will. I would like you to say the words of Samuel. Speak, Lord, for your son, your daughter, is listening. To obey is to listen. I'm calling on you to do the thing God is telling you to do or to quit doing the thing he's told you not to do. Now you can do that if you want out of duty. You can say, he can make me wish I had or you could do it out of wisdom. You could say, he's probably right about this. Even though I don't like it and I don't want it, he's probably right, and I should bend my will so it is for my own good. What I would like you to do is to say, Father, I will do this out of love. I'm not afraid of you, and it doesn't feel to me like it makes my life better, but this morning I want to do it out of love. Last slide. The table this morning represents the table of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where one of them has a thought and the other one finishes it because their hearts resonate with one another all the time. When you get up and come to the table, someone will say to you the bread of life and the cup of salvation. What you might say in return is, here I am, O God, I have come to do your will. Or you might say, speak, for I'm listening. Maybe you'll say, be it unto me, as you have said. I'm calling on you this morning as you take communion to think not only of what God is giving you, but what you're giving him in response.